Welcome to episode 173 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony. And this is the podcast of Brotherly Love. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much, man. How are you? Back among the living. And, and I'm just going to use the opportunity to go sneak right into my denial, which I'm going to, at the end, try to turn around into something that's a little bit more favorable. But yeah, so we recorded last week. And, you know, I think our motto is in the regular principle of podcasting can't stop, won't stop. Yeah. So. But I was like at the end of the podcast last week, like feeling horrible. And when I went back and listened to it a little bit, which I don't always do, I was like, man, my voice sounds horrible. And so that was like the beginning of the end. And I had the <laughs> flu this past week and somehow made it through the podcast, then had a crazy fever. And then later in the week when it didn't go away, went and got tested and they were like, yo, you got the flu. And I was like, yeah. I mean, I got something going on. I just need some help here. Yeah. And the, uh, the doctor who I saw, she said to me, did you get the flu shot? And I was like, like very sheepishly. Cause I was embarrassed at that point. I said, no. Oh and she man. Was like, Wouldn't have mattered anyway. She's like, I'm seeing everybody who still got it. She's like this, the strain, at least in this particular area that we're getting is nothing like the one that, you know, they have to guess and choose one yeah. ahead of time. And so I guess it's, it's not been the case, but yeah, I haven't had like a crazy fever in a long time. So it was like a super adventure and like just trying to do normal things because there was a time where I was like, I feel like my brain is not working. Like it just wasn't working. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, uh get your flu shot people. Uh, I don't, I don't care what the doctor says about this one not working. Cause here's what happens, right? Is, is if not enough people get the flu shot and the flu starts to circulate around, that's when it starts to mutate. And that's when people start to get the flu who already got the flu shot. So there, there is a fact that they have to like guess at a strain and sometimes they get it wrong. Right. But also if not enough people get it, it mutates. And that's part of why people still get the flu later in the season. But yeah, man, the flu is no, it's no joke. No, I haven't been that ill in a while. And I was actually at some points like surprised at how awful I felt because I felt like I was being a super baby about the whole thing. Yeah. And we, you and I were talking about this just before recording. And this is where the denial, I guess, comes in is this is one of those quintessential slapdust in the traditional category of Jesse denying against the fall and sin and how that affects our bodies. It's all of that, but it's like that to another degree from what I've denied before, because as we were just talking about, the flu is so dangerous because your body is trying to destroy it and your body will literally try to destroy itself yeah. in an effort to make sure that it kills all of the virus. So of course, like when you have a crazy high, high fever or something like that, that's what it's trying to do. But there's so all these other awful side effects, but that dysregulation between those things, all those, the fact that it's trying very diligently because it's been fearfully, wonderfully made to combat some kind of invader. And yet at the same time, it's possible because of sin that it's going to do all this irreparable damage to your body in trying to do the very thing it was created to do. So yeah. it's just an amazing manifestation of the fall. So I am denying against the flu, but I want to flip it just slightly. And that doesn't say in many ways though, I've fallen on my knees this week and have thanked God for his goodness in giving us or allowing us rather to experience sickness because uh, for two reasons, at least one is to remind us how good it is and what a blessing it is to feel well 
and that to have the juxtaposition of those two things is a blessing we ought not to take lightly. So sickness has in its way that wonderful reminder that we are contingent beings that we often forget when our health is, is great. The second thing is it makes us very compassionate for those who are suffering and for those we often have the benefit of having a season of sickness, but there are some for whom that is really their way of life yeah. through no choice of their own. And so it's a wonderful way both to be reminded of the goodness of God and then to be given a heart that is compassionate toward those who are suffering. So that's my denial, but I'm trying to sneak in maybe a little bit of an affirmation in God's goodness, even in the midst of the sin in this world. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. But on top of that, just get your flu shots, people. It's there's really like no two ways about it. it it's it's but most of the time it's free. It takes like twelve minutes. It's it just do it. Even if like it doesn't actually help you not get the flu, it doesn't make you get the flu. It doesn't hurt you. Just no, do that's it. true. Just just yeah. take yeah, care of it. Definitely, very little reason to not get a flu shot. Again, I don't want to go back to a trope that we've trampled on many times before, but this is why we're one of the top 50, was it 50 healthcare <laughs> yeah, podcasts or sure. companies or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's exactly for PSAs like this. Like people hear this in the medical profession. They're like, yeah, this podcast is on point. It is. Not, it not is. only do they give really good, have really good theological discussion, but really the, the balance that they provide by way of healthcare advice <laughs> is also exceptional. Yeah, I'm expecting another award nomination after this episode. So, <laughs> so am I. Our email's going to blow up on Thursday. We're stepping up our game. So yeah. speaking of stepping up games, you want to also drop your denial? Yeah, so I'm going to uh, drop a denial. Please, if you are a snowplow driver, don't take this the wrong way. I've had <laughs> I've had a tough Where time with, with snowplows this, uh, this winter. Um, so we had a, a storm event uh, on Thursday and Friday. And oftentimes when we have a big snowstorm, you know, we have one tiny car and one SUV that has four wheel drive. And so Ashley and I, my wife, Ashley will carpool. And and this time we actually chose to sleep over at um, mom and dad's house because they're closer to work. The dog could stay during the day. That way, if we did get stuck, you know, they can take care of the dog and, and feed her and everything like that. And so I, we come home on Friday night and our car, my small car, which was still at the church, is plowed in, which is not typically something that's a big deal. Like you just wait. And when the plow comes the next day to sort of finish the job, you move the car and they finish the job. Well, they the guy came and he plowed while I was gone. I had to like run to the dump, do some errands yesterday. And he he came and plowed again and plowed my car in even more. But he like normally when they plow, they actually do a really good job of like getting the rest of the lot, right? It's in the church parking lot. They get the rest of the lot. And then there's just this one spot that's not plowed, but he totally like phoned it in. So this morning when we had church, <laughs> the the lot is basically like 75% plowed. So we had okay. to like Tetris all the cars in to try uh. to even fit them all. And like, we don't have a big church. We have maybe like, maybe like 10 cars to park in our lot total. And we had to like, basically like Jerry rig them Tetris in even to get him to fit. So I'm I'm denying against plow snow plowmen who only do 75% of the job. Yeah, the struggle if you live in a place where you get any some modicum of snow during the winter 
is real when it comes to the plow situation. Because if you've never been or lived in an area like that, you just don't realize that snow is when it piles up like super inconvenient. It is this game of kind of like a giant slide puzzle. We're both for like your vehicles, if you have one, and then also just like where to put it. And then if you get too much of it, you generally have to move from the place that you put it in the first place. And when you're plowing, Plowing is, is pretty difficult because you actually have to like. There's a skill to it, right? Like, right. If you know if you have a really good plow person because they make it look effortless and you never have to worry about any of this stuff. But when somebody doesn't do it quite right, you notice because it makes it super inconvenient. And again, this sounds like a super lame complaint, but this just moving like frozen water around from one place to the next is yeah. a lot of work and it is a tremendous amount of coordinated effort. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, like. Our plow guy is usually pretty good, and and what happens with these these like storms where there's multiple storms in a row is they'll go out and plow for like twelve hours, and then they'll go home and sleep for four, and then they have to go back out. Right. So by the time you get to the end of a like the end of a big snow event, these guys have been out like plowing for like twenty four hours out of like thirty six hours, and so they're they're a little punchy by the end of it. So I'm not like. I'm not really blaming him that he like didn't get the whole thing because like my car was in the way I get it, but like it really does make a difference and it's not cheap to hire a snowplow. It's not like no, it's it's not. not like a small amount of money. I mean, it's like a it's like a couple thousand dollars a year usually to have someone plow, and like we live it like we have a big lot. We can't like there's no way that I can even with a, a snowblower. There's no way that I could do it myself. So we we have to have a plow. But he just I was I was actually like a little surprised because he usually is so on point. Even when we leave a car there, he still usually gets the lot basically done except for that one spot that the car's in. And this time it it was really bad. I'll take a picture and send it to you and you'll understand how bad it was. I'm not gonna bother showing anyone else because nobody else would care. But <laughs> but it was like understand. it was like really bad. Like it was hard to get our small <laughs> church worth of people in the lot today. That's how bad it was. Uh, the, that's a really though great representation for this podcast. It's basically you and I denying things that you only you and I can apparently really appreciate <laughs> as denials. <laughs> yeah. Well, what are you affirming? Let's end it on a positive note. Okay. So yeah, I got something that I think is great and I've been, I've been sitting on this pun intended. You'll hear it in a second for a long while, but it's also a super weird affirmation probably coming from me. So I'm just going to go right out off the top here with it. I'm affirming a website called LAPoliceGear.com. And uh, I'm neither a police person, uh, nor I have had any experience in law enforcement. But a friend turned me on to this site many, many years ago. And they have all kinds of amazing and wonderful paraphernalia that they sell. But the thing that I'm particularly affirming with is they sell amazing pants. <laughs> so if you go to LAPoliceGear.com, look in the clothing section. Um, I can't speak to the ladies' pants because I'm not a lady. But what I really like is they sell these pants called like their cargo pant or like a tactical pant. Yeah. And they're made of this amazing material that's like almost indestructible. So even though I'm like not doing tactical drills, nor do I work, and again, in law enforcement, these are great for like hiking, working outside. Like you can't tear these things. And they have a metal zipper. They have like the, um, what's that called? Like reticulated like knees. They're super flexible. They're really comfortable. And if you are into guns and firearms, they've got like all these like interesting weird pockets for, I think, which would be like firearm type stuff. I just use them for like pens and wallets (laughs) and stuff like that. But I'm pretty sure like you can put knives and stuff in them. So they just make amazing, very affordable because the pants are something like uh, the ones I'm looking at right now are $22. 
Um, and I think they are on sale, but I always get them for about that price. And they're just like, these things are indestructible. They're workhorse, they're beasts. So especially if like being outside or again, I guess if you do like to go hunting or you're into carrying your weapons on you, the pants are constructed in such a way to allow you to do that. But they're just like amazingly um, comfortable and really durable. There is, I think, somewhere on this website, a hilarious video of a dude demonstrating how like they're prime and made for tactical maneuvers. So he's doing like a lot of like crouching and squatting <laughs> and army crawling and showing how like it's got like a brass zipper and a brass button and the knees all, all flex. I, I was like, okay, that's cool. I just want to like, I'm just going to go, like I might have to pick up my keys after I drop them. That's basically like as much tactical maneuvering as I need to do. But LAPoliceGear.com has so much like amazing, affordable, very interesting stuff that I found super helpful and useful. So I figured it's about time for me to bring this up, even though it's it's probably a very unlikely affirmation for me. Yeah, I'm looking at this website right now, and I'm looking at <laughs> a product called LA Police Gear Terrain Flex Slim Fit Jeans. Yes, yes. And it's funny because there's nothing overtly <laughs> tactical about them, and you can tell that like in the the little photos where they're demonstrating the tacticalness of this, that they're really stretching because there's one where they show you like a little secret pocket and what they're yes. putting in it is a handcuff key. <laughs> they're like, trust us. This is for police. Here's a handcuff key. Uh, uh, but that, So that's what makes this such a, I think a great affirmation from my perspective is it's, it's kind of like, I think actually they call it at some point like urban tactical. So yeah. it's this idea of like having clothing that's comfortable, that serves like a second purpose, but isn't like overtly, like military or law enforcement oriented. So yeah. that's what makes it really unique. So I'm definitely not probably like the target audience for this, but man, do I love their pants. Like the pants just by themselves at that price point are very affordable. And then you throw in that they're like super comfortable and yeah, like maybe I don't have a handcuff key, but I don't know, like maybe I want to throw some guitar picks in that pocket. So there you go. Yeah. There's lots and lots of different things we can do with those pants. Uh, I'm also looking at the LAPG W900 flashlight, which has a yeah. turbo mode of 900 lumens. <laughs> and you can you can flash that bad boy at 900 lumens for four hours. Wow. That, that will blind a bear. 900 yeah, lumens that, is a lot. Yeah, that's, I'm actually surprised that thing could stay lit for four hours. I feel like it would just explode or just melt under the heat. Yeah, that's crazy. You can also do strobe at 900 lumens, which will pretty much kill a man. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm telling you, there's so much great stuff on this site. And um, if you're a person like I am that's also into like backpacks and stuff, they have a whole backpack section that's pretty, pretty awesome. But again, a lot of it is geared toward firearms. Yeah. Um, so again, if, if you're, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, listen, I'd like to wear a pair of pants to my office, but I am tired of strapping my firearm to myself with my appropriate concealed permit. I'd rather have just a pair of pants where the pocket's already built in. And then also maybe something for a handcuff key here. It yeah. is LA police. <laughs> they also sell something called a black Hawk fanny pack. <laughs> <laughs> they have a fanny pack section on the LA police gear website. They have a fanny pack collection. Listen, apparently uh, you need a fanny pack sometimes That's in a situation like that. And yeah. if you're, I, I do appreciate that 
there's some smart marketing happening there because I think the only way you could get me to look at a fanny pack is if you named it the Black Hawk fanny pack. Because now I'm thinking, well, yeah. wow, that's got to be like a legit fanny pack. That's not like the thing you see while people are power walking. That's, that's like something that is being used in serious tactical maneuvers. That's true. That's true. It's good stuff. That's a good recommendation. Good. Well, rescue rescue us from this affirmation that just went into so many directions. It did. So I have an affirmation that requires a little bit of audience participation. So From me? From everyone, from oh, our okay. audience. I'm affirming something called Discord. Have you ever heard of this? No. How's it spelled? Just like it sounds. It's just the okay. word it's just the word Discord. There's no special pun involved in it. So I thought it was a pun. No. Discord is uh, originally started off as like an online gaming uh, chat room, like uh, voice server. So a lot of times if you're playing like an online game, you have to have some sort of other server to do voice chats so like World of Warcraft, for example. You might have a room where you're kind of talking to the people you're playing the game with instead of trying to type while you're fighting monsters, you can just talk. But it's kind of like morphed into just a general voice chat service where you have servers that you do this. So we I have started a Reform Brotherhood Discord server. And so I'm affirming this service and the audience participation point is that everyone needs to go and join this server. And along with the Discord server, I've also started something on a website called caravan.ca, which is like a book club service that utilizes Discord servers. And I've got a, a reading club set up for Reform Preaching by Joel Beakey, which we're going through today, and then also a reading club for Institutes of the Christian Religion, which I'm reading through this year and some other people have joined. So you can go on here. It's a place where you can chat about the books you're reading. We can You can have real-time chat either through text, like typing through text, or through voice. You can put it on your phone so you can actually like just jump into the server like you're talking on your phone. So check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes for the, the Discord server. But if you go on Discord, I think you should be able to search for Reform Brotherhood and find it. Uh, but there's also a link up in our uh, Facebook group as well. So check it out. I'm affirming Discord, specifically the Reform Brotherhood Discord server. And so this is something you can also use to chat about video games? Yeah, so like if you and I were playing Mario Kart, although I don't know why we would need to talk to each other while we're playing Mario Kart, but like if we were playing <laughs> Mario Kart and we wanted to talk to each other, instead of having to type what's going on, we can just talk through the service. So you can like in, chat in real time. Right. Yeah. It's like it's like a voice service. So oh, like okay. it, it became more popular in like um, tactical RPGs or like online role playing games where like if, if we were playing World of Warcraft and we were going to fight a big boss together, you might have 15 different people that you have to try to coordinate a strategy with. And in the middle of a battle, if you're trying to like shift the strategy or change someone's role, rather than trying to type that well, you're also trying to fight the monster. You just have this voice service where you can talk to each other like in real time as the game's going on. But you have to kind of do that separate from the game. Otherwise, it lags the game down. So there's all these different services that cropped up. And Discord is the one that became like the sort of the premium or like the premier version of it. It used to be that you'd have to have like your own server set up, but discord has that service all taken care of. You literally just log in and create a, a channel and it, it takes care of all the technical end of it. And every day is a school day on the reform brotherhood yes. podcast. Yes. So that's what I'm affirming. Join up, check it out. It'll be great. I love it. Well, speaking of this ongoing theme of learning things and it being a school day and school days come with books 
We are, as you said, still making our way through Reformed Preaching by Dr. Joel Beakey. We'll be making our way through this book for some time. So again, come on, get on the Reformed Preaching train. It's still never too late. And one of the great things we keep saying about this book is the chapters are somewhat encapsulated. So you can pick it up and join us even where we're at right now. And I think still get so much out of it. And yeah. to that end, we're looking at chapter 13. And this chapter is in the series about Puritan preachers. And it's all about John Bunyan. And I'm actually really excited that we're finally at J Bun. Yeah. I don't know if he would like you calling him J Bun, but <laughs> yes. Yeah. One of the things that I think is so cool about this as I was reading is that every everybody or most most Christians, particularly Reformed Christians who've been Reformed Christians for any period of time, like any length of time, have either heard of or read Pilgrim's Progress or read part of it or heard it referenced in a sermon or something. But most right. people, so most people are familiar with Bunyan in terms of that element of it. Maybe they've read Grace Abounding to a Chief of Sinners, which is like his autobiography of his life. But most people are not familiar with him as a preacher. Um, I did a little bit of study in seminary on Bunyan because I had a, a course on um, English Puritanism. So I know a little bit about him as a as a preacher, but it was exciting to sort of read through this and learn a little bit more about his own style, his emphases, and kind of what we can learn. So I think it's a great chapter to sort of look at to say, you know, there's these kind of big heroes of the faith that we think we know, and we probably only know one element of them. So we should take the time to learn the rest of it because it really kind of like fleshes out the rest of Bunyan's life. And I think gives some insight even into like as you read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, or if you, you know, you read like, um, some of his other works, it helps you understand those works a little bit more clearly. Yeah. I, I'm glad you brought it up that way because my thought was that this chapter proves the worth of this book, if only for that reason, because it's trying to bring to light some things that we often don't spend much time thinking about. Bunyan is kind of like almost a caricature of his own self, but right. it's because we've made him that way. And so I actually would make the contention that he is the most underrated Puritan preacher. Because yeah. we he, we usually think of him as the storyteller, and we know very little, and just just because we haven't invested a lot of our own time to understand more of what he said. So, even before we get to talking about him, I want to piggyback on something you just said and throw this out there as kind of like a challenge to people: if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, just do it. Like, there's no reason to wait anymore; just do it, and you're going to pick it up, and especially pick up the one written in the original language. It is going to be tough to read through, but it is yeah. worth it. And I would encourage you to labor through it, actually, and really try take your time to understand what he is doing in the story and the characters and the allegories that he's using. It's worth wrestling through, if only because so many people speak about it. But what I found is that there's actually a very few many people have taken the time to actually read it and try to metabolize it. So yeah. this is a great excuse to just jump in. It's a very short volume anyway, but... It, it's a great reason to just pick it up if you haven't done it already. Um, the other thing getting into Bunyan that I was struck by is we spent a lot of time in this book looking at examples of men. For example, one of Bunyan's contemporaries, John Redboots Owen. We've looked at a lot of people like John Owen. And in their life, what we've seen as they've come to the discipline of preaching, they've come by way of a lot of immense, intense learning. They had a right. natural ability or skill set, and then they were trained in a formal, very formal way that was of kind of a rigorous nature. What we find interesting about Bunyan is he's basically the exact opposite, that here's a man whom God used mightily in his preaching, 
And yet, even by his own admission, I think there was some sense in his own life that he was not like his other contemporaries. Right. That his education, his experience basically was his education. He didn't have that kind of formal training. And yet, still, here was a heart that was not only on fire, but God used in a way to bring about the word powerfully in such a way that was as if he had all of that formal training. Yeah. And one of the po- things that um, Beaky points out that I've always thought was interesting, and, and this wasn't new to me, but it was it was interesting to read, is Bunyan actually began to regularly preach from his pulpit um, before he himself even experienced the assurance of salvation in his own yes. like subjective experience. And it was actually through that preaching that he kind of came into more of an assurance of salvation, which is not typical. And and one of the things that I think it bears saying as we, as we read some of these figures is that just because someone like Bunyan or like Spurgeon comes to mind, just because someone like this exists where um, they haven't, done the learning they haven't studied you know in our day and age you might say like well they don't have an mdiv or they haven't been to seminary just because someone like that exists doesn't mean that those things aren't important or necessary um or should be you know some people say like well spurgeon didn't have an mdiv so nobody needs an mdiv like that's not (laughs) a good way to look at it so so i think that's important to call out here and and this element of him beginning to preach before he even was assured of salvation himself, like in his own experience, it's the same thing. Like you shouldn't put a new convert up on the, up on the pulpit and tell him to preach just because there are John Bunyan's and Charles Spurgeon's out there who were amazing preachers who faithfully exposited the the word without having been converts for very long and without any formal training, just because these people exist doesn't mean that they set the tone or the, they're the ones that set the bar in terms of experience or education. Right. I agree with you. This exception is not the rule of life with respect to how preaching ought to be. And I think part of the reason why perhaps God, if, if I can understand the situation even remotely well, allowed something like this is because, you know, that warning given so that there might not be a puffing up, I think what's unique about Bunyan is that he was literally in many ways surprised that anybody would even listen to him in his speaking. So here's a man that was not at all going and preaching the gospel because he was in some way trying to elevate himself or this was his moment of self-fulfillment or self-aggrandizement. That's what struck me is that here's a man that was so humble, so undone by the weight and the glory of God that he almost reluctantly went and I love this quote that you were kind of talking about in page 224 of the text, uh, where Bunyan says, I went myself in chains to preach to them in chains and carried that fire in my own conscience that I persuaded them to be aware of. So here's God using a man in a really unique and particular way that's still really under the burden and the weight of the law. And uh, he's so under that weight, so humbled that he can't even believe that anybody would listen to him. And so it's, it's almost like there is in his own life, God is bringing out a balancing such that he's able to use him for a time and a season to really speak in this particular kind of way because he himself is undone by it and is so undone by it that there's no possibility that he's going to become prideful in it. Yeah. Yeah. And this kind of marks, I don't, have we talked about any of the Puritans yet? I don't think we have 
that were really experiencing the persecution of Elizabethan England, the way that Bunyan has at least. I don't, no, I don't think there have been any prison <laughs> preachers. I mean, there's been some that were ejected from their uh, ejected from their pulpits and had to go yes. and preach in the fields. But Bunyan um, is unique, at least among the people we've read so far, certainly not unique among the Puritans as a whole, but among the, the ones we've read about so far, in that he, he suffered under pretty significant persecution for his preaching. So he, he was arrested on more than more than one occasion. I think he had two imprisonments. The first one was relatively short and the second one was much longer and much more difficult. And so we have to sort of think about Bunyan. You know, when you study Bunyan, you have to sort of think about his pre-imprisonment work and his post-imprisonment work. Pilgrim's Progress was in it written a lot of it was written while he was in prison. I mean he didn't have a lot of time or he didn't have a lot to do. He did some work Work that earned a small amount of money to support his family. Um, but he he was very productive even within his persecution, even within his imprisonment, probably because of it, he was shaped and driven to preach and proclaim the gospel in a way that, again, like you and I probably can't really think about the fact that, like, what would it even mean to be so uh, in love with preaching the gospel that you would abandon, I mean, abandon is not the right word, but you would be willing to forsake your family and, and sort of be forced to leave them to fend for themselves in order to continue preaching the gospel. That is a man of faith. And sometimes that yes. seems like almost a cowardly act. Like, well, what about your family? Shouldn't you take care of your family? But for Bunyan and for Bunyan's wife, like Bunyan's wife was on board with this from what we can tell. His his focus and his passion was the the verbal preaching of the gospel, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what it may cost him. This is what he did. And, and that tore at him like it was difficult for him. He looked at it and it. It hurt him that he had to deal with the fact that he was apart from his family. He had a blind daughter. He had four children and a, his wife was trying to support them. And yet he still was willing to give all of that up in order to faithfully preach the gospel. Yeah, there's a special understanding that he had in that role. And that's one of the things that also blew me away about how Beaky was describing him, because he notes that in 1660, he was arrested on the charge of preaching without a license from the king. That charge resulted in him being thrown into prison for 12 and a half years. Yeah. And during that period of time, there wasn't any small number of opportunities by which those who were his oppressors said to him, you don't even have to recant. We're just telling you, if you will say you will not preach, you can walk out the door. That, that's all it takes yeah. at any given time for you to be free. And he refused to do it because he said for him, basically, preaching was breathing, that he was so far under compulsion that there'd be no possibility that he wouldn't end up back in prison again. So here is a man that is coming out of this school of preaching, but the, the classroom itself is in the prison cell. And he's so well acquainted with, I and mean, imagine all of the temptations, the sins and the fears that he would experience by way of having this unique kind of imprisonment, which is basically, you know, it, as we talk about it, almost self-imposed in the right. sense that like he does have a family whom he loves. He laments that he's not there for them, especially his young daughter. And he knows that at the same time, it's impossible for him to say that he will not preach the gospel. Yeah. And so when he writes these words, when he writes Pilgrim's Progress from this heart, I think it's easy to look at some of those books and to say, well, these are really good ideas. They're strong ideas on their own. But to know that they have been actually fire tested before they've hit the page is something that I think is unique to his type of preaching. And you see that in one, one particular place that Beaky keeps drawing it out and some place that you've already noted is that he talks about the preacher 
as God's author, uh, authorized spiritual guide. These three yeah. words really were something that really kind of of great import to me in this chapter. Authorized spiritual guide, and Beaky quotes from in Pilgrim's Progress this scene in which. Um, the, a pastor is being described, and I, I don't want to spoil it, though it, this book has been out for a long time. But um, <laughs> spoiler <laughs> alert on a book that was written in the 1600s. Yes, yeah, spo- spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. But but this scene is so vivid in my mind the way it's described. So I don't want to ruin it for anybody or take away from it. But basically, they're looking at the characters are looking at a picture, an oil painting of a pastor, and one of them remarks. This is the work of the pastor is his work to know and unfold dark things to sinners. So this idea that here is Bunyan who himself very physically was in a dark place. And yet the role of the the pastor, the preacher is to somehow go in to see something that is not yet illuminated, but by God's grace is illuminated and to shine light on it. So this idea, again, he's a very, he's masterful with language and there's a lot of precision. It's like he's using a scalpel here to, to take away. And what he's saying here is this unfold dark things to sinners, I think is yeah. a very profound statement about who a pastor is and what he ought to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. That scene in, uh, in Pilgrim's Progress in Interpreter's House, I think is one of the most beautiful. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I haven't read the entirety of Pilgrim's Progress because it is, it is just a really hard book to get through. Um, I, I think I laid my eyes over every single word in seminary, but I didn't really absorb a lot of it. But that scene in Interpreter's House where, where Interpreter is taking him and he's showing him, some of it is like paintings that he's showing him. Yes. Some of it is almost like object lessons or there's like skits almost where things are enacted. That really shows you because it's interesting because there's the picture of the preacher, but then Interpreter himself is actually an image of a pastor unfolding the scripture and explaining it. Right. And so it's, it's interesting because... Bunyan's model of preaching was not oration, right? So there's nothing wrong with oration. There's nothing wrong with rhetoric. um, There's nothing wrong with utilizing those vehicles of communication in the preaching exercise. But Bunyan was not a trained orator or a trained rhetorician. He, He was a common person utilizing common ways of speaking. And so this, this idea that interpreter is using word pictures, actual pictures, enacted scenes, almost like skits or drama, that really is an image of what Bunyan thinks, at least him as a pastor, what he's doing for the people. And so he, you know, Beaky makes the comment that Bunyan would often impersonate uh, God to the people. We we read about that in, in the last chapter. There was, there was this, this uh, style of preaching where the, the preacher would actually sort of take on the personage of God and present himself almost in like a skit fashion as addressing the people as God. And so there's this element of almost like drama and, and um, uh, pageantry that comes with some of uh, Bunyan's preaching that we don't see a lot in some of the other uh, Puritan preachers. And that's what's remarkably unique about him. And I think again, that God is using him continually even in our day and age, in this way because of the experiences that he brought him through. And Beaky spent some time with reference to that very thing, that the experiential preaching for someone like Bunyan was quintessential in nature because he's just going through so much stuff. Yeah. And so actually, I think my favorite work of Bunyan is not Pilgrim's Progress, but probably a second place to his work on prayer. And part of the reason I was so drawn to that work is it is pastoral. But it's almost like just in that book, as it is in his preaching here, as we've been talking about it, 
he's speaking as someone as if they are friends with one another in the sense yeah. that he knows what he knows what it is to suffer in this way. And so when he gives you advice, when he speaks and exposits the scriptures about prayer, about temptation, about long suffering, about what it means to come under full servitude to the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, here is one that's walked the way either before you're going into it or along with you. And so you get somebody who is whose heart is overflowing with just here is the good advice that we need in the situation in which we find ourselves. Yeah. So it's it's not even somebody that's like disassociated or that is like really trying to bring about some kind of understanding of a complex topic in, in terms of its theology. But here's one who's saying, I have lived a hard life. God has made me to see hard things, just like the psalmist writes. And so because of those very things, I am drawn to the breast of Christ. And in so doing, I want to speak out of that experience and preach from that experience against it's the theology is present because it was absolutely needed for fruitful and faithful living. And yeah. so that's the kind of preaching that he gives us. Yeah. And so, you know, let's talk through some of those uh, elements of Bunyan's life that Beaky draws out. So, so Dr. Beaky draws out these three different kind of like phases or uh, experiential touch points in Beaky's or in uh, Bunyan's life. And he draws out that there's, there was terror there was doubt and then there was grace. And so he he, right. he talks about how in Bunyan's preaching, especially early Bunyan preaching, it was all about the terror and the the fear of God and the weight and the pressure of the law. And and he used that in his own experience, that fear that drove him to Christ. In his early preaching, he hadn't quite figured out how to preach the gospel. He was still really focused on the law. And so there's this terror of the law, this terror of our own fallen estate that Bunyan had really internalized and had really grappled with. You know, it it talks about it's it's strange because it's it's not entirely sure historically what he's referring to, but Bunyan had this thing he liked to do that's called like bell ringing. And they don't really know exactly what it's a reference to, but apparently there was this thing he did and he felt really guilty about it after he would do it. And there's, he had this experience where he actually overheard these women talking about him and how like terrible of a person he was. And that really like rocked him to his core because one of them was a godly woman, but one of them was just sort of an ungodly woman. I think there was actually an instance where he actually overheard a prostitute talking about how, how terrible and how, how dangerous Bunyan was. And so this experience of even the ungodly standing in judgment over him really drove him to be fearful of the Lord. And then through that, even after he became a Christian, he still had this nagging doubt about his salvation that followed him even into his early preaching ministry. But then as he growed, grew, almost said growed, as he grew and matured as a Christian and as a preacher, he started to comprehend and grasp and therefore be able to preach the grace of Christ in a way that he hadn't before. And so, but, uh, Beaky kind of lays out these three phases or these three stages in Bunyan's maturing as a Christian to really sort of demonstrate how Bunyan then crafted all of his sermons, that his sermons had this element of, of the fear of the Lord, this weight of the law, that the terror of that. And then he sort of in, enticed people to doubt themselves a little bit, to, to understand that they're still right. in a precarious position. And then he would apply the grace of God in order to sort of resolve that terror and doubt and drive them to the one who can give them that grace in order to resolve and to assuage them of their fear and doubt. 
You know, incidentally, that reminds me of something that I've thought for a long time, generally speaking, about preaching, and that is that I think some of the best preaching, the one that I appreciate the most, but I think the one is most rooted very closely in the scriptures, is the kind of preaching where when the pastor gets up to speak, and as he's prepared, in fact, all throughout the week or longer for to deliver this message, it's been focused inward first, like right. in the sense that, have you, I mean, have you ever been a part of a sermon where or you've attended a place where the pastor just only gives glowing, uh, like he always uses glowing examples of himself. Yeah. So there's always something a little bit helpful when I think the pastor is self-deprecating because that at least shows that he's being thoughtful. But even more above and beyond that is I think what we're talking about here. The pastor that gets up and you you think, wow, that sermon is just like on point. It's challenging, yeah. but it's like diagnosing. It's cutting into me. It's, it's, it's pulling out the cancer. It's showing me something I didn't have before. And I think part of that is the pastor who's willing to be the one that's first willing to go under the knife in preparation. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like that's, yeah. that's having this kind of helpful doubt because of those three things, this was the one that really struck with me is in his unbelieving state, Bunyan realized that he was even afraid to acknowledge his own lack of faith. And I think there's something there even for us. Yeah. This idea of really trying to be evaluative in how we look at our understanding with, and maybe especially realizing that theological knowledge is not necessarily a precursor for a strong sense and certain knowledge of faith. And so I think sometimes we can be afraid because we think, well, if I start to have these feelings, if I start to really assess and test whether or not I'm in the faith, I'm not going to like what I see. And don't I know enough intellectually to know better than that, or to at least say that I have enough familiarity with these concepts and these theological terms that I ought to be in the faith? And that's yeah. not what he says here. And I think that's a very scary thing to do, but I think we ought to try to do that from time to time. Yeah, th this sentence here, and it, this just um, sums up Bunyan so well. He, he, this is Bunyan uh, writing here. He says, when God shows a man the sin he has committed, the hell he has deserved, the heaven he has lost, and yet that Christ and grace and pardon may be had, this will make him serious. This will make him melt. This will break his heart. And this is the man whose heart, whose life, whose conversation and all will be engaged in the matters of the eternal salvation of his precious and immortal soul. And, and that, that really encapsulates Bunyan's whole program for preaching. And, and this, this is the, this is the thing is that this is not new. Like nothing that we're reading through this should be revolutionary. Like all throughout this book, it's been solid law gospel preaching. Like every, I mean, different preachers have different emphases, right? We read last, last time we read about Goodwin and Shepard and, you know, Goodwin and Shepard have different emphases. I think it was Shepard who tended to be more heavy on the law and Goodwin who tended to be heavier on grace and the gospel. But this law gospel preaching to show someone what they have lost by their sin and what they stand to, to obtain by the merits of their sin compared to the, the eternal, and infinite blessings of Christ that come through faith alone, that was really at the heart of Bunyan's preaching. And he experienced it. That's that's the key that I think is different from some other um, other preachers you may read, is that he really experienced the lowest lows. Um, right. you, know, you can almost think of Bunyan as like that former gang member who comes out of a life of drugs and violence and embraces the gospel and goes to, you know, goes and just starts preaching the gospel from the heart. And God uses that in a powerful way because of how far the person has been brought from death to life. 
they're able to show that transition to others in a more kind of stark way. You know, it's not like someone like, um, you know, like a John Owen who was raised in the church, never got into serious trouble and had a conversion experience at some point, but it wasn't this drastic uh, experience of going from bad to good. It was kind of this experience of going from unconverted to converted, but right. it's different for Bunyan. It's a different experience than, than I think a lot of the other Puritans had. And so on the one hand with Bunyan, we've got, as you just said, all of this stuff that happened to him that was really outside of his control, but part of his experience. And yet on the other hand, I would say when it comes to this issue of faith, we have him, him putting himself in a place that he can have the experiential knowledge. Right. So I was really challenged by this idea that he basically said that he was not going to be content until he came to a certain knowledge of faith. He was unwilling to be content until it came to that point. Yeah. And it made me think, well, what do I need to do to get to that point? Do I even ask that kind of question? So this idea of wrestling with the scriptures, of wrestling everything that he's going through, I think made his preaching particularly strong because he was a man that was just not willing to be entertained or distracted in any other way until he came to a solid understanding, until he himself was fully convinced. And in our day and age, it's just so easy to turn your mind onto something else very quickly because you just don't want to think about it. Yeah. Here was somebody who was not willing to let that happen. And I really think that's admirable. Like, I wonder how that, by his example, how does that fit into, how does that play into how we ought to understand the faith in the scriptures to really go forward, leaning into the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who has saved us and just to pray as pray in the way that you just kind of read from that quote there, like, Lord, teach me what it is to be like this. Teach me what it is to understand and have certain knowledge of faith. If we prayed like that, I'm wondering how God would answer that type of prayer. Yeah. what it would look like. It would certainly be through the scriptures. But I think sometimes I think we hope, or maybe I'll just speak for myself. Sometimes I hope that when I open up the scriptures, as I pray through them, that I'll just be led automatically into some kind of dexology that results almost without a lot of effort on my part. Like I'll just be like, oh my gosh, like God, you are so amazing. And there are times that that does happen. But I think the kind of weight and accountability and influence that Bunyan is writing about here is of a different kind. It's the kind yeah. of, of the Christian who's ready to go to work with trying to understand and is not afraid to peer and do some self-evaluation, understand there is in many places in my own life, a lack of faith. And then is at the same time, unwilling to be content with that lack of faith, yeah. even knowing that it will not be made perfect until the beatific vision when it is no longer necessary or required. But until that moment that we ought to strive to have the most certain and complete knowledge of faith that we possibly can, and that that doesn't primarily or maybe even principally happen because we read a lot of good theology, although that is important, but that because we are wrestling and praying through the scriptures and asking that God who is the progenitor and giver of faith would in fact make it certain and knowledgeable for us. Yeah. Yeah. And so then... Um Dr. Beakey then kind of pulls out three distinct elements or distinctives of Bunyan's preaching. And that's not to say that others don't also have these, but he's kind of identifying these as like the thing, the hallmarks of, of Bunyan's preaching kind of in contradistinction to someone else's. And so he, he talks about how um, Bunyan was uh, involved in participatory preaching. And by that, he means that Bunyan believed that the, those hearing the sermon 
needed to be participants in the sermon. And so one of the ways he did that is he often preached in the second person. So he was actually preaching to the congregation or he was often kind of impersonating himself as a member of the congregation under the preaching of the word. Um, He also talks about how, and this is the one I want to focus on most. He talks about how Bunyan exercised what he calls pleading preaching. And so there's an element of Bunyan where he was begging the congregation to respond in faith to what it was that he was preaching. And so I'm not going to read this whole thing here, but he has this long quote from a Bunyan, um, a Bunyan sermon where basically he is um, comparing the person who claims to be a Christian, but bears no, uh, no fruit to the barren fig tree. So he's, he's pulling out some of the biblical imagery of Christ cursing the fruitless fig tree, but then he, he actually takes that and sort of reshapes it into a different analogy. And basically it's this fig tree that is, um, is basically flaunting its fruitlessness in the face of God. And then as the fig tree is dying, as death comes to claim this, uh, claim this wayward person, the fig tree suddenly begs God to save him. And, and basically he's saying like, if you don't bear fruit, if you refuse to be a fruitful tree, then you shouldn't expect in the final day for God to show you mercy. And he's not using that in the sense of uh, a legalistic perspective. You're not saved because you're, you know, you're a fruitful tree, but he uses this to sort of plead with the Christian to say, don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait until someday in the future when you think you'll have an opportunity to repent or you think you'll have an opportunity to bear the fruit that is in keeping with repentance. He's saying there may come a time where God shuts the door on your ability to repent. He shuts the door on your ability to be saved as you approach death and you don't want to be found in that. So he's begging the, the hearer of his sermon to respond. And I think there's something, of course, that's very biblical about that, but something maybe that's lacking in contemporary preaching is this idea of urgency. And I appreciate that. This idea that what we're talking about here is in fact an emergency, that our time is short and that what every cry of the gospel is a cry that's come, repent, believe, be saved, turn and do it today, do it now. Uh, there's, there was always like, I think in all of like the first century preaching and all of Jesus's preaching and, you know, Jesus was primarily a preacher. We have this sensibility that you ought to do it now. Don't wait a second longer. Right. Um, even going back to Moses, if you hear the voice of the Lord, like do not be hard hearted. And, and I love how kind of Beaky talks about how there is this tension between knowing that not everybody is going to respond to that message, but it does not mean that you need to, you should not couch it in language that has this kind of real sense of urgency. Yeah. Yeah. And then the final um, distinctive that he calls out, and we don't, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this because this has been a common theme throughout all of the preachers we've looked at is that his, his preaching was really focused on exalting Christ. So he calls it Christ exalting preaching. And he's, he's saying that even though Bunyan's preaching had doctrinal elements and there was this, um, evangelistical or evangelistic um, element to it as well, that the end of the day, his preaching was not only doctrinal, but was also doxological. So regardless of the fact that it was a doctrinal treatise, that it wasn't evangelical pre a sermon, it also served for glorifying God and driving those who are in its hearing to the further worship of God. And so you have this three part uh, element of 
Bunyan's preaching that really forms kind of the core distinctive of his, uh, his way of doing things. I mean, incidentally, Bunyan is just a wonderful example of, I think, the veracity of the Christian faith, because here's a man that obviously was intensely practical, made a substantial amount of sacrifices for what he believed, but was really in his own life proving and testing out everything that he claimed at least was true. And so when we get to this point about his preaching of being Christ-centered and Christ-exalted, really all I can imagine is him having these times of amazing like emotional temptation to give in or to feel sad for himself while he's in prison, for instance. And to the only thing he can rely on is, is the Christ who is the one who's close to him while he's in that moment of suffering, while he is alone by himself. That's the Holy Spirit who is providing him the nourishment that is essentially reinforcing all of these wonderful doctrinal things into a heart and a life in such a way that they are normative and practical. And so I think that what God gives us through Bunyan is a special kind of preaching that lifts up Christ in that kind of unique way. It's not to say that there are many other men and women who haven't had that type of experience and spoken to it. It's just that I think what we see here with Bunyan is somebody who is incredibly humble and was self-sacrificing and did so under the auspice that he owed everything to Jesus Christ, who was his comforter, who was with him in the fire on the hard road, in this, in the jail cell beside him. And so I think that that, I don't want to say that colored his preaching. I think that was his preaching, that here was an ethic where its strongest incentive was in its practice. And for him, the practice was one of practicing the doctrines that he taught, being lived out through a life that brought doxology because Christ delivered him. Here was the one that was actually coming through, even in the hardship. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Bunyan is one of those figures that I think, whether you agree with all of his theology or not, whether you um, agree with his preaching or not, he is such a significant figure in the history of Reformed thought, because he does come at things with not a different theology, but a different way of looking at that theology. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, when you read Pilgrim's Progress, there are, you know, if, if you read Pilgrim's Progress with a real strict eye to the Ordo Salutis, and I have a question I want to ask you about that, but if you read it with a real strict eye to the Ordo Salutis, it's kind of messed up. Like he, he gets it, it it's wrong. Funky. Yeah, it's it's a funky way to look at it. And, you know, like there's the Holy War and there's things in the Holy War, which is another allegory that he wrote that just don't quite sit right. But but if you read him and you look at him, you can't avoid the impact and the influence he's had. I mean, some some figures say that the Pilgrim's Progress is the second most uh, second bestseller in all history of English literature, second only to the Bible. Um, you know, it, it's this enormous work of cultural significance that even you know if you look in like Penguin's classics or like um, Oxford's classics. Um, like anthologies, Pilgrim's Progress shows up in these as like a massive work of English literature. You can't avoid it. Even secular people can't avoid it. So I wanted to ask right. you with that in mind, when do you think uh, Pilgrim slash Christian actually gets saved in the Pilgrim's Progress? <laughs> that is the question though, isn't it? It is. So what do you think? I don't, I've gone back and forth on this a couple of times and now I'm, I'm actually more, I would say I'm... I've actually tried to, this is going to sound lame, but I've actually tried to liberate myself from trying to put down a particular experience or point yeah. where he is. Yeah. Because 
like you said, it's almost, it's a little bit too free flowing with respect to like, there's no, we we're used to think of this in kind of a logical sequence where there's a, a really firmly established chain of events. Right. And that's not exactly the way that he unfolds the story. And so I struggled with that for a long time until I finally was kind of at liberty of like releasing myself from trying to impose on him that that was exactly what he was trying to do. So I, I don't think it's particularly helpful, of that, but I'm, I'm kind of like shirking the question. Yeah, that, that was an excellent non-answer. Thank you. <laughs> I just didn't want to answer it because, so, because I don't know that I really know. Yeah. I don't really know. So, uh, I, you know, me, I'm like a technical, uh, I look for the yes. details in the text. You're probably right if you're reading the story and trying to interpret all the symbolism because there are several points. Like there's there's several uh, significant uh, yes. candidates, right? There's when he right. he goes from the through the wicked gate or the wicker gate. Right. There's when the burden comes off his back at the foot of the cross. You know, there's there's all these different points where it could have happened and there's good arguments. But I think there's a good argument right right off the beginning of the book. It's when he's with obstinate and pliable. Right. So Pilgrim Pilgrim and he's called Pilgrim. And this you'll see why I think this is he's called Pilgrim up to this point. Right. So the text has like little name indicators for who's speaking throughout the allegory. And up until this point, he's called Pilgrim and he, he flees from the city of destruction. Evangelist tells him that destruction's coming. He, right. he flees and he starts on his way and two of his neighbors named obstinate and pliable come and they come specifically to try to persuade him to not continue on the path that he is. And right. obstinate says here, what, and leave our friends and our comforts behind. Right? So they say, we're coming to get you to come back with us. And Pilgrim says, I can't, you live in the city of destruction. Uh, we'll die if we stay there. And obstinate says, well, should we leave the people behind? And then uh, Bunyan calls him Christian. His name changes to Christian when he says, yes, because that all is not worthy to be compared with a little of what I'm seeking to enjoy. If you'll go along with me and hold it and sh- you shall fare as I myself will for there, where I go, there is enough to spare. So there's this weird spot in the text where he stops calling him Pilgrim. There's no reason. It's not like he was hiding his name. It's not like there's some big reveal that this is some super secret person. But he was called Pilgrim, and now he's called Christian. And it's it's at that point where he faces the decision to go back to his life and to abandon his pursuit of God that he starts to be called Christian. So I think that's when it happens. But there are a lot of different arguments for other spots. This is one that I don't hear brought up very often, though. No, I, I mean, I have heard that a slight variation of that before, but I agree with you. It's it's a, that's an interesting yeah, theory. I mean, I'm not opposed to that. I, th- I think that's what makes this work in some ways particularly beautiful. Why I was so reticent to pick a spot is because yeah. I think oftentimes the, the burden falling off is the place. But I also think there's something beautiful in not knowing exactly because I think there is a truthfulness in how he writes that this is, is messy. And we're getting these kind of like little snippets of amazing interactions and experiences. And God is doing something in this grand narrative for Pilgrim. And it's, it's beautiful and it's complex and it's nuanced in the sense that just like in our own lives, I think sometimes we think that we are saved, like almost like what Bunny is writing about here. Like we think we have all the pieces together and we understand. And then God does something to just knock us down. And then we realize, oh my goodness, I don't, I'm not sure that I was, I ever had the faith that I thought I possessed to begin with. Yeah. And so I think there are almost some of those little occurrences in this narrative, although it's, I can't say for sure, but e- either way, there's just all these really amazing, beautiful points. So maybe, I mean, 
as we're coming to the end here, the, again, we can just affirm, let 2020 be the year that you pick this up for the first time if you haven't before. And I think you would agree that we'd be remiss at this point if we're talking about Pilgrim's Progress, the, the work in particular, that we didn't again recommend something by our fellow brother, Paul Cox, yes. who he has an illustrated version of this that's now available on Amazon. It's called Pilgrim's Progress, A Poetic Journey. It's an illustrated book that's been adapted for children. It is beautiful. It is worth everybody picking up, whether you have children or not. Yeah. But this would be a wonderful foray into this story. So go check out Pilgrim's Progress, A Poetic Journey by Paul Cox. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the only other recommendation that I have is uh, to check out this Discord server that we've set up. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to toss a book club up on Caravan about the Pilgrim's Progress. And so you can join up with other Reformed Brotherhood listeners who are reading through this in 2020, chat about it, uh, argue about when Christian becomes a Christian. Um, You know, in, in some senses, like... The Pilgrim's Progress was not written by Bunyan to be an allegory of every Christian's life. It was right. really written to be an allegory of his life. And so right. this this uncertainty and this, I shouldn't say uncertainty, because I'm sure that he in his mind had an idea of when it was that Pilgrim became a Christian. Um, but the lack of clarity is quintessential about his Christian life. Like we, we talked about that, that even, even as he began preaching, he still was plagued with doubts. And as you go through the Pilgrim's Progress, and as you'll see, Christian becomes more and more sure of what's going on. He becomes more and more assured that he's on the path to the Celestial City and that he will actually reach the path of the Celestial City. Um, and that very much is quintessential of Pilgrim's pre- of uh, Bunyan's preaching and his sort of whole program for how he intended to edify the church. Yeah, that's well said. He's He is a unique life that God used in a mighty way. And it's amazing that something written in the 1600s would still captivate all these generations. And there's something to be said just for that. And, and I think you would agree that some of, as we already described, just the language and the images that he paints are like breathtakingly haunting. They're yeah. just absolutely beautiful. And there's some that they just get, they get stuck in my mind. And I do find myself coming back to them and thinking about a particular concept. And what I find is it's almost like that old concept of like the memory palace. You're supposed to try to memorize something by putting it in a spatial reference in your mind. Right. And he does that, I think, exceptionally well. He's taking really big and broad theological topics. He's distilling them down. And then he's putting them in this, these kind of like stories where I think about that room in interpreter's house all the time, actually. It's one of my favorite scenes. And um, I just found myself dwelling on it and thinking about it as if I was standing there having the conversation and thinking about these rich theological concepts. It's, it's glory. I wish, I wish I was that dude. I wish I could, maybe is it, I mean, maybe we can try to make this podcast, the pilgrim's progress of audio (laughs) medium. Maybe that's pretty, uh, pretty ambitious there. Yeah. Well, especially since I spent like the first 10 minutes of this podcast talking about police pants. So I'm pretty sure that's the damage has already been done. That's true. And fevers and fevers. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, to bring it full circle, it's, it's possible. Who knows what I said last week? Cause that was (laughs) just straight up like fever city. And I'll tell you one thing. Can I deny one more thing before we end this conversation? You may proceed. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate the floor. So (laughs) when I went back to hear if my voice sounded as awful as I felt it did, and I confirmed that indeed it sounded 
fantastically awful. It did. Awful. You sounded like trash. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I love it. <laughs> I was I had to go to our website. Had to go to our website. I love to go to our website. I went to our website, <laughs> and or actually no no maybe maybe it was because um, now I'm in the Facebook land. I, I went on the Facebook. I clicked on the link, and then I didn't notice. Although I remembered you told me this, that we now get like a transcript of everything yes. that's been said. Oh my goodness. That was worse <laughs> for me than hearing my own voice yeah. was having somebody or looking at a transcript of stuff that you've said. I was like, I would never listen to this person because <laughs> su super annoying and apparently cannot speak at all just based on the transcript. Yeah. Well, the transcript doesn't do a phenomenal job of understanding what we're saying. It's enough to get the broad contours. I don't do much with like cleaning up the language and making sure it's accurate. Uh, I, well, I wasn't even, I was sensing it was like inaccurate. I was just yeah. like, wow, <laughs> I don't, English is my first language. It was just yeah. so horrific. I was like, wow, I will never look at this ever again. All right. Well, I'm going to go to Bible study. Jess is going to go take a nap. And until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.